Almighty Father, uh, as we come to your word now, we ask that you will indeed uh, uh, recalibrate ourselves to, to you. Um, we we want to see Jesus. Uh, we want to see Jesus in the way that you led this Samaritan woman to see Jesus uh, and, and the rest of the village. Um, it, it seems that, that they were actually able to see him more clearly than Jesus' own disciples. So, so grant us to be more like the Samaritans than the disciples today. Um, and do whatever is necessary uh, to get us there. Uh, fundamentally, we want living water. So make us more thirsty than we are right now. Uh, and supply the, the living water that we, can't, we cannot generate ourselves. Uh, so do that by your Holy Spirit. We're, we're waiting for you. Expectant. For you to act. Thank you that you love to give us living water. So teach us what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat, uh, everybody, and please turn back to uh, uh, page nine. We've got a big old long reading today. Um, usually we have a couple of readings. Today we've got such a long one that, that, that we get to just kind of focus on that one. Um, each week, we're, we're in the middle of a series going through this story. And so each week, we're taking a, a little uh, portion of the story. Uh, in, we're not going to talk about every single thing in the story, because there's, there's quite a lot in there. Uh, but each week, we're looking at a different bit. And there's two questions that are sort of hanging over this series. The first question is about transformation. Uh, what is the nature of the transformation that Jesus wants to affect in our lives? So following Jesus means change. Following Jesus means growth. Uh, following uh, Jesus is always uh, working in people. And trans there's a dynamic element to following Jesus so that uh, it's very, very normal, standard, for uh, a Christian to say, um, five years ago, I was different from uh, who I am now. And, and I, can, I can actually tell you, can you do this? I can actually tell you a little bit of the ways that Jesus has challenged me, uh, uh, moved me forward, grown me, transformed me in the last five years. It's normal for Christians to be able to, to, to have some idea of, of some progress that has occurred. And so the question, one of the questions we're asking looking at this story is what's the nature of that transformation? We want to understand it so we can live it more fully. The second question, however, is uh, what is the nature of Jesus's mission for us as Christians? So Jesus wants to change us, but he also wants us to be uh, his, so to speak, agents of change in the lives of people around us, uh, in our city, workplace, all of those sorts of things. And so we want to ask the question, what is that mission about? Uh, is it, um, yeah, how, how do we do it? Is, it? is it scary? Is it creepy? Uh, is it exciting? What's the nature of it? What's the nature of transformation? What's the nature of mission? And this story is really helpful because it's a case study where we get to watch Jesus uh, as he begins to transform this woman that he meets at the well. And then at the end, he sends her out on mission. We talked about that a little bit more last week. Today, we're going to primarily talk about how it is that Jesus begins to really deeply work this transformation in her. And here's what I want to show you today. Jesus begins to transform this Samaritan woman at the well, and he begins to send her out on mission, not by uh, scolding her bad behavior um, or, 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 or guilting her into good behavior. 
not even by inspiring her and activating her profound potential. He doesn't do any of those things. Rather, Jesus transforms her by, so to speak, satisfying her deepest soul thirst. Jesus satisfies her very deepest desires, and that's where the dynamism and the power comes in her transformation, and that's what um, we need to look at today. Now, what in the world does satisfying her deepest soul thirst mean? Well, thank you for asking. You ask very good questions, you know. I love it when you do that. All right, let's, let's jump into the story. Um, and let's recap the story a little bit. If you were here last week, uh, we, we went into a little bit more detail, but just kind of fast-forwarding. Jesus is on a road trip. Uh, he's been ministering in the south of, uh, of Palestine in Jerusalem. Now he's heading north uh, to his hometown in Galilee, and he needs to pass through the middle, uh, which is a place called Samaria. It's modern-day West Bank. In fact, even I think just this morning there was an NPR article uh, about uh, contemporary Samaritans, so look it up. It's fun. Um, it's a tense place today. It was a tense place 2,000 years ago. However, despite all of that tension, um, Jesus and his disciples stop in Samaria for lunch. And uh, Jesus is resting by a well. It's the middle of the day. It's hot. The disciples go in to get lunch for him and them. And uh, there at the well, Jesus gets talking with a Samaritan woman. And here's the thing about this conversation. The whole conversation is pressed forward, at least the beginning part, is pressed forward by Jesus provoking the conversation forward. He is profoundly provocative in this story. So most uh, conversations that we have, like I had a number of conversations with you this morning when, when I first saw you and I went something like this, how are you? And, and you responded and you said, oh, doing well. And then, and I said, it, you know, I love this time of year. Isn't it nice this time of year? And you said, yes, it is nice this time of year, although the rain yesterday was a bit odd. And you, you, know, you, know, you know how it goes. It's a completely conventional conversation. It's wonderful because you don't have any risk involved. Um, it's boring, but it's great. You know, it's fantastic. I, I recommend this. There's, this is nothing against those kinds of, please, let's do that a lot. Jesus, however, never does that. So if that creates a tension, we'll have to deal with that later. But he almost never does that. In this story, he is provoking all the time. And he's always turning the conversation in unexpected ways. So um, watch how he does it. So verse 7, we're just going to do this and fast forward. Uh, verse 7, he asks, he asks uh, the Samaritan woman for a, a drink, which was, which was totally awkward. It's not... It's, it doesn't seem like it would be weird, but it was, like we said yesterday, uh, last week, it, it crossed, it, 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 it created tension for the identity politics of the day. Because Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and men didn't talk to women, and, and the Samaritan woman immediately goes suspicious. She goes, whoa, hang on. She's sharp as a tack. She's totally street smart. She goes, what are you playing at? What are you this is weird. I, I'm on to it. What, what's going on? And then Jesus doesn't even really address the weirdness. He just flips the conversation some more. And he goes, actually, I asked you for a drink. But really, I shouldn't ask you for a drink. You should ask me for a drink. Because I have living water. And she looks at me and she's like, living water? 
she thinks he's talking about running water. And so she basically comes back at him and says, what, are, you, are you a plumber? Because if we're talking about running water in my house, that's fine, I'm game, because I'm sick of coming here to the well, right? I mean, okay, at this point in the conversation, it's pretty light in tone. There's some deep stuff, very deep stuff, that Jesus has brought up, but it's relatively light in its tone. But then, Jesus shatters all of that in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Jesus says to her, she still thinks they're talking about plumbing and running water in her house, and Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. And there's a really awkward silence. And then she says, maybe she just kind of looks down a little bit, and she says, I, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus keeps pressing. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. What in the world is Jesus doing? Why would he do that? Because one minute, there's this banter about running water. And it seems like they're starting, maybe, maybe there could be some rapport that occurs. And then the next minute, Jesus reaches down into her soul, finds the epicenter, apparently, of her pain and her shame, her disappointment, her betrayal, possibly the very center of her desires for intimacy. And he just reaches, he grabs it, he pulls it right out, lays it out on the table. Why? Is he shaming her? I mean, in this culture, that, that this, is, this is a big deal. This isn't like a small thing. This is a big deal. Is he berating her for something? Is he cruel? Is this how Jesus transforms? All right. Pause. Back up. Backstory. And then we'll come back to the text. Hundreds of years before this, uh, Jeremiah... Uh, was ministering in, in Israel, and, and this was right about the time, kind of roughly, around the time that um, mainstream, the mainstream Jewish community and the Samaritan community began to part ways. And uh, the national life of Israel was falling apart. Jeremiah is diagnosing the problem in his, in his big book. And in chapter 2, this is God speaking. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says this, uh, my people Israel have committed two evils. Just listen closely. First, they have forsaken me, says God, the fountain of living waters. And then second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, now, uh, follow the imagery there, because he, Jeremiah, hundreds of years before this, says that God is a fountain of living water. Sound familiar? But then, uh, Jeremiah says what's happened is Israel has uh, decided that um, instead of a fountain of living water, a living water is water that moves, it's a, it's a spring. Instead of a fountain of living water, they're better off by constructing for themselves cisterns. Now, a cistern is a tank that catches water. So when I uh, was living in Israel, uh, there was a flat roof, 
um, the, the, uh, the slope of the roof came in towards the center of the building, and then there was a drain. And so the rainwater would come down, go down the drain, and then it would fill up a cistern in the middle of the house. Now, the benefit of a cistern is that you can, uh, you can have water in your house anytime you need it. And it gives you a sense of control because, because it's yours. You don't have to share it with anybody. You don't have to go to a, a fountain or a spring or something like that. And, and, it, and it, it's really, really convenient, right? Or at least that's what the marketing says. But there's more that the marketing about cisterns don't tell you. Um, because the, the benefit of water from a spring or a fountain is that usually, all things being equal, it's usually cleaner. Water from a cistern sits. It comes in, goes down the drain, it sits, washes some stuff down into it, and just sits there. And if you're not careful, junk falls in. And if you're not careful, stuff starts to breathe in it. And then if they break or they leak, what happens is the, the ratio of nice clean water to yucky uh, starts to, to, to go to unhelpful levels, right? And then you got a problem. So in the context, cisterns get an A for marketing and they get an F for user satisfaction, right? Because it's green, it's yuck if you're not good at keeping care of it. Okay, Jeremiah's point is that Israel has abandoned the spring of living water and they've chosen to create their own cisterns apart from God and it's left them thirsty and ill. And the only way, according to Jeremiah, to get them from their broken cisterns back to the fountain is if they feel their thirst and if they feel and understand the brokenness of their cistern and that living water is better. Okay, keep that in mind and bring it back to the story. Why does Jesus bring up this woman's relational history? He's not being cruel. He's not shaming her. What he's doing is he's, he's like Jeremiah. He's pointing out her broken cistern and therefore her deep soul thirst so that he can give her living water and he can show her to the fountain. What I want you to see is that there's mercy here. It, there's, Jesus is severe, but it's a severe kind of mercy. He's looking at a woman who deeply, deeply desired to be known and to be loved and to love in return. She wanted real and true intimacy. Jim, how do you know that that's what she wanted? Because she's human. And that's what we all want. And that desire for intimacy, to be known deeply and to know in return and to be loved deeply and to love in return, that, that is a, that desire is good. It's, it's God-given. But it's a thirst that God has given us that only he can quench. And we don't know the details of her relationship. We don't need to know. It's important that Jesus doesn't press for any more details. We don't need to know all the details to know that, that each one of these relationships, one way or another, failed to quench that deep soul thirst that she had. Inevitably, each one promised to satisfy. That's why she entered the relationship, but none of them uh, uh, followed through, which explains in some way how all of them ended. In each case, there was a profound pain. 
And so Jesus comes to her, and in his kindness, he looks at her and he says, are you thirsty? How's your cistern working for you? And are you up for trying living water from a fountain? All right, let's turn this on ourselves for just a few minutes. Um, Friends, when Jesus is transforming us, when he's working on us, um, he will regularly increase our thirst and show you your broken cisterns. And again, he does it not to shame us. He does it to heal us. It's one of the best ways to think about what Christians call sin. Sin is always a broken cistern that we've hewed out for ourselves, that we've tried to self-create. Because what happens is, um, sin always gets an A for marketing and an F for satisfaction, right? So, so it, it, it says, hey, check it out. Come here. Come here. You thirsty? I, I, I got something. I got something better than God. Come on. Let's go. So you go out, and it's always self constructed. It's always works-oriented. You've got to do it. You've got to make the thing. So you hew out a new cistern. But the problem is, after a little while, and, and when you're hewing it out, you're, all you feel is the desire, the promise. That this is going to be great. This is going to be great. I'm going to have water in my own home. It's going to be great. And then, but the problem is, before too long, you find yourself inside a dark, moldy cistern licking up the muck and wondering why it doesn't taste better than you thought it would. And then, even worse, when you're sitting there inside the muck of your cistern, then we start thinking to ourselves, oh, yeah, no, this isn't working out so well, but what I really need is I just need to make a better one. I'll make a better one next time. And so you climb out and you start working on your new cistern, but then the problem is, before long, you're right back there licking the mold off the side of the wall. And so what Jesus does when he's transforming us is he's got to break the belief that sin satisfies us. Sin always promises to do, but doesn't deliver. And so he does that. He shows us our broken cisterns. He shows us our thirst. He will intensify it sometimes. It hurts, but it is the beginning of our healing. This is one of the ways we need to think about confession. Every single week we come, we confess our sins, right? We haven't done it yet. We will in just a few minutes. When we confess our sins, and as Christians, we, we, we privately confess our sins daily. When we confess our sins, you must understand that it is not self-loathing. It's not wallowing. What it is, is it's bringing Jesus our broken cisterns and bringing Jesus our deep soul thirst that we try to quench other places. We bring it to Jesus. Why is that important? Why does it matter? Because when we bring our broken cisterns to Jesus, that's when we get to hear him say, verse 10, we get to see, hear Jesus say, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask and I would give you living water. Because that's what Jesus is aiming at in your life, in my life. Do, do you notice, um, with going back to the story, he doesn't go into great detail about her relationship history. He just drops it. He doesn't talk about it anymore. Why? Because Jesus' goal is bigger than just addressing her behavior. He wants to give her living water. He wants to draw her to the fountain. He wants to satisfy her deepest soul desires. Go back to the text. Watch watch how this works. 
So remember Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, God is the fountain of living water. And so the idea is, stop, go away from your sister and go to God and drink. Great, makes sense. But Jesus, in this conversation with the woman, he, he does something different. He pushes beyond Jeremiah. Verse 14, Jesus says, drink this water, and then there will be a fountain of living water inside you. Sorry, inside you. That was weird. It was just, it was just underscoring, you know. What does it mean for the living water to be, the fountain of living water to be in you? It's something beautiful. It, it's the image of God dwelling in us. And the image of God dwelling in us as a fountain of living water, it's an image of intimacy. The deepest desire of the human being is for intimacy, to, to be known and to know, to be loved and to love in return. That's the whole game. That's the deep thing that you want. I know you want money or success or fame or whatever it is that you want. I know you want those things. But imagine for a minute that you got whatever it is you define success to be. If you get it and you have in your relationships are terrible, your life's going to be terrible. Right? At least theoretically you know that, don't you? But on the other hand, even if you don't succeed in every area of your life, if the relationships are there, then there's something... There's something deeply, deeply valuable. We all of us seek intimacy, but the problem is wherever we seek it apart from God, we inevitably find ourselves hewing out broken cisterns. Even when we go to reasonably good places, we end up doing that. We try to build it for ourselves, to control it. We, the result is there's always brokenness. There's always some level of brokenness. And that's why we need a fountain. Not one we build, but one that we receive. We need it outside us that they then can come inside us. We need God. We need to be deeply known by God and deeply know God in return. Deeply loved by God and deeply love him in return. And here's the crazy, remarkable thing. Do you know where that intimacy with God starts? Do you know when that, where it starts at that fountain is inserted into our lives? It happens when we find ourselves down at the bottom of a broken cistern that we've built and we're knee-deep in the muck and we're miserably deluded. We're slurping up the muck trying to persuade ourselves that it tastes good. And then we hear the voice of Jesus up above us at the opening call out and say, if you only knew the gift of God. And then we look up to see the voice, and we find that Jesus is climbing down into the cistern. And he plops down beside us, and he's knee-deep in it like we are. And then he says, we're trading places. I'm taking your cistern, you climb out, and you take my fountain. Jim, where do you get that from? That's not in the text. Well, do you know the next time Jesus mentions being thirsty? He's thirsty in this text. That's why he stops at the well. Do you know the next time he mentions being thirsty? When he's hanging on the cross. Hangs on the cross. He goes, I thirst. Why does John mention that he's thirsty on the cross? Every other time he mentions thirst, it's about giving water to people. John mentions Jesus is thirsty on the cross in part because on the cross, Jesus was trading places with us. It means that intimacy with God begins when Jesus floods our broken cisterns with his love. Not when we improve our behavior, not when we uh, 
finally get to building a good cistern that it works. Rather, it begins when we are loved in the midst of our deepest, profound shame. Because if you have been loved in your shame, then you know what intimacy is. Intimacy happens at the cross. And you have never tasted it. You have desired it, but you've never tasted it until you found it at the cross of Christ. And so that's how transformation works, both when we begin to be Christians, but then as we grow as Christians, what happens is we meet, Jesus meets us at our worst thirst, our deepest shame. He trades places with us and floods us with God's love that only Jesus deserves. And we find ourselves loved by God and known by God, not because of anything we've done, not because we've hewed out a better cistern, but because Jesus bought us a glorious fountain. That's how transformation works. And if we believe that, friends, it will transform the way we pursue transformation, and it will also transform the way we think about mission. Because it, it, if we deeply believe this, it, it'll make us thirsty. It'll make us eager to know Jesus more. It'll make us eager to bring him our broken cisterns. Rather than trying to hide them or anything else, we'll want to bring them to Jesus because we know that every time we bring our broken cisterns to Jesus, he gives us his glorious grace and it tastes good. So Emmanuel, get thirstier. But if we believe this, it'll also make us humble and hopeful in mission. Because it'll make, it'll allow us to look at our city, look at our friends, look at people here in church and beyond church and in our family, and, and it'll, it'll allow us to look at them. We'll be able to see their broken cisterns, but we won't be looking at them in like some sort of superior sort of way, because it's like, man, I've been there. It'll make us humble. But it'll also move us to pray. It'll move us in compassion. It'll move us to pray. If only they knew the gift of God and Jesus who was offering to them, they would ask and he would give living water. It will move us in humble, hopeful compassion. It'll move us to pray. It'll move us to deeply enjoy the living water Jesus gives us and then describe its flavor to those around us. That's what Jesus wants to do. Amen? Amen. Amen.